Well, it's good to see you here this morning. For the last couple of months, I've been watching the back of your heads, and uh, it's good to see your faces somewhat. These masks are most interesting. Uh, by the way, when I would watch your heads on television, you know, I, I could tell which ones of you were falling asleep. It was, it was amazing. It really was, yes. But uh, I'm so glad that uh, my sister and her husband uh, are able to join us, and Jeremy and Deborah and all the family members are here, and uh, we're just so glad that you're here with us. When I found out that I would be following Eric McTaxis from last week, uh, I groaned, yes. But Sally said, you don't talk as fast as he does. Thank you. I appreciated that compliment from her. As some of you know, most of you know, we moved to a 55 and older community last fall. And it's interesting as I attended the men's Bible study, the, the voices that I heard and the attitudes that were sensed was, now what? I'm over 55. What am I going to do with my life? The laugh part came from our dear friend Peggy Fulgham over at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church who leads the senior ministry there, and it stands for Life After 50. It seems to me as I walk amongst so many different people that many of them are living life in the rearview mirror. Should have, could have, would have, if I had only regrets. But I want to address my remarks to the people in this congregation who may feel that. There is so much ahead, so many opportunities to share your wisdom, to, to share the lessons that God has taught you in life. I have to be honest and tell you, I am grateful. I am grateful that this church is committed in every department to see the next generation grow stronger in Christ. Whether it's children, STS, HUB, ABC, small groups, congregational care, whoever it is, there's that commitment to build the next generation to be solid followers of Christ. I am so grateful for that. But you may have the attitude here today, what, you know, that, that's for the ministry leaders. You know, that, that's what their job is. No, that's for every person, every saint. Every saint to be sharing their life, mentoring the next generation. Some of you may be sitting in the pew and say, well, you know, I don't, I don't really know how to do that. I, I, I've never done that before. That's why we want to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because Paul sets the pattern in this chapter of how we can share our lives and build into the lives of future generations. In verses 3 through 6 in this chapter, we see his past character, how it was developed. It says, verse 2, but after we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness of our God to speak to you the gospel of God amongst 
much opposition. You see, there was that time that Paul spent three years in the desert being talked by God. That God's waiting room where God taught him personally and powerfully to prepare him for future ministry ahead. It says here, he was approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. This word approved is the most interesting word. Most of you know it. It's the concept of refining gold. And after the fires have gone through the gold, the, the dross is removed. And so I went through the book of Acts and found some, the ways that Paul had been approved by God. Acts 9, he was threatened by death. Acts 5, he was stoned and left for dead. Acts 16, he was beaten with rods and imprisoned. Acts 24, he was imprisoned for two years. Acts 27, he was shipwrecked. But it is interesting when you study those passages, there is never a mention of bitterness, lashing out, retaliation. 2 Corinthians 6, 5 said he had beatings, imprisonment, hunger, falsely accused. That's fire. That's real fire. For us today, I have been with some of you in hospitals. Some of you, I have buried your children. I have buried your spouses. I have seen you in most difficult, critical situations. I remember one incident very, very vividly. We were at Emory University, and the doctor had just come in to meet with the family and said to the family, there is nothing more that we can do for your son. We are going to disconnect him from life support. And in the quietness of that moment, a voice said, who was the man's father, he said this, God will get us through this. Hmm. What's God used in your life so that you're approved to be entrusted with the gospel? Friends betrayed you, events in your life, finances that have crushed you, workplace issues, health issues. What is it? Whatever it is, listen carefully to the words of what Elizabeth Elliot said. The deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. And as Dr. Youssef would say, an amen belongs here. Paul said he was approved to be entrusted with the gospel. I love this word entrusted. It's, it's the living out of what God has taught you in that approval process. It's, it's the authentication. It's the real deal. 
God has authorized, God has conferred upon you the truth of what the gospel is all about and what his character truly is that has been revealed to you in the deep waters and the hot fires. He says, as a result of that, there's no error in my doctrine, no impurity in my morals, no deceit in my ethics. I'm not a man pleaser because I have met God personally. I've gone through the refiner's fire, and one day I will stand before God, and he will be the judge. He will examine my character, and my true character will be revealed. So his character was not only developed by God, but it was also displayed to others. The concept of honesty in verse 5, I didn't come with you or to you with flattery. I, I'm not a man pleaser. I, I, I'm not speaking with slick elegance. I'm not a spinmeister. I don't have a hidden agenda. What you see is what you get. What I speak is the truth from God. No flattery. He never sought to exploit them in any way possible. You've met people like that. They've come on slick and strong, and you always have the question mark. I wonder what he really meant by what he said. That was not true of the Apostle Paul because he had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And so he displayed that in honesty. And he said in verse 6, I, I didn't seek any glory from you either. The concept of humility. I can remember when I was first starting in ministry, I, there was a series of meetings at a church that I was involved with. And this main speaker was uh, the leader of an international organization based in Europe. And he spoke most eloquent sermons, unbelievable sermons. But I had the privilege to get to know his personal attendant who was staying with him and ministering to him and uh, with him and getting his luggage and helping him with different aspects. And I said to this friend of mine, I said, wow, what's, what's it like to work with a guy like that? And he turned to me and he said, he is so demeaning and he is so demanding. I was shocked. I, I just, like, wow, unbelievable. You stop and think of the great saints that you know and have influenced and have respected you, and you've gained their respect. What is it about them? Why is that? It's because God's grace is upon them. For James says, God stands in opposition to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Can you imagine that? God stands in opposition to those that are prideful. Ooh, that's serious. First Peter 5, Peter, we all know Peter, open mouth, insert foot. But you know what? That arrogant Peter has become a broken man to be used by God. And in 1 Peter 5, he says, clothe yourself 
with humility. This concept of clothes is that it, there was a white apron that a slave would put on his belt. And that would be the distinguishing feature of whether he was a free man or a slave. So that when he would go out in public, everybody would know that he was a slave because he had the white apron fastened to his belt. And Peter says, we are to clothe ourselves with humility. Humility. I hate this statement, but it's true. Warren Wearsby used to say, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's what? Not thinking of yourself at all. <laughs> oh, come on. You know what I'm talking about. Humility. That character was developed by God privately. He was approved by God. He was entrusted by God with the gospel. And he displayed it with honesty and humility. That's the character. Now, how do we put that character that God has developed, how do we put that into practice? What is our commitment to be with what God has done in our life? If we're entrusted with the gospel, how do we live that out to the next generation? His present commitment is seen in verse 7. And he says it's two ways. It's like a tender mother and a teaching father. The tender mother says, I was willing to you not to impart the gospel of God only, but my own soul. Why? Because we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Tenderly cares. This word in the Septuagint is used of a, of a, a bird warming the nest, warming the eggs. Tenderly cares for the children. And as a result of that, Paul says, I didn't come to you with the gospel of God only. I imparted to you my very own soul. That soul, that's what makes you you. Your thoughts, your emotions, your choices. And when you impart that to people, your feelings, what you're thinking, the choices you've made, good or bad, all of us here would say, we used to be young and dumb, now we're old and stupid. We've all made bad choices. And we impart that knowledge to that younger generation. We impart then those life experiences that are truly God moments that you know only God could do this. And you impart that to the younger generation. Why? Because it said they had become dear. It didn't say they were dear, are dear. They had become. Growing together, the sharing of souls. I didn't really know what this verse meant until December 13th, 1976. I began a journey that I never dreamed I would go on. I, I had 
I varied an entire family. I varied babies. Um, I varied one of my dearest friends. My congregation was about 125 people. And I buried 16 people in 18 months, and only one of them was a natural death. And my heart was broken. And I said, I'm going to retire the ministry. I don't want this. I don't need this. But God said, yes, you do. And what I learned was this. If you want the blessings of the ministry, you have to take the burdens as well. And God taught me lessons in that little congregation in Montana countryside that I have never forgotten. You willing to take the risk to tenderly care, impart your soul to someone of that younger generation? The Wall Street Journal on March the 2nd had a great article that said, parent talks before it is too late. And in the article, it was talking about the younger generation questioning their parents about issues in life, their background, choices they had made, mistakes that they had made, difficulties that they had gone through. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what we should be doing spiritually for the next generation, sharing with them what God had done because we tenderly care for them like a mother. We live life together. Uh, uh, the good times, the bad times, when we weep with those that weep, and we come to a place where we don't know what to say, and the best thing to do is say nothing. It is the power of presence that counts. It's living life together. Your life is a living example of God's grace and mercy. Your life is a living demonstration of God's proof. What? That his mercies are new every morning. And great is his faithfulness. And you share that with a younger generation. So Paul says, he said, I'm not only committed to these saints tenderly as a mother, but they also need teaching as the father. I love the way he does this. There's three incredible words or concepts. In, in verse 9, he says, I want to teach you by my work. He said he's diligently laboring and, and hardship. I'm going to stick to it no matter what it costs. I'm going to finish the task. And this word labor, it's intense. It's not just work. It's intense labor. And no matter the difficulty, I'm going to do what's right. I'm willing to sacrifice for the well-being of someone else. May I tell you something? Ministry that costs you nothing accomplishes nothing. Simple as that. He says, I want to teach you by my work ethic. I want to be conscientious, not lazy. I want to finish. And if it means hard labor and difficulty, I'm willing to do that for the sake of our Lord. 
and your life. The second way, he says, is verse 10. I want to teach you by my walk. And the key word here is not conscientious, but consistent. That's one of my great prayers, Lord, is, Lord, may I be consistent. I don't want to live my life on a roller coaster. I want to be consistent in what I do. And he says, I want to be consistent devoutly before God. J.I. Packer, who just passed away Friday at the age of 93, wrote these words in his book, Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and the whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So well said. I want to be consistent in my devotion to the Lord in my personal time of worship. And he says, I want to be upright in myself. I don't want to be two people. I don't want to be like a chameleon changing all the time to fit the circumstance or situation. Romans 12, too, we know the verse well. We're to give our bodies to be holy and acceptable before the Lord. When you think about that, holy, set apart. The animals for sacrifice were set apart. But it says acceptable. And so when the priest would cut the animal open, he would examine the animal for any flaws. And then he would deem it acceptable for sacrifice. The outward and the inward were the same. No chameleon. Holy. Acceptable. Which is reasonable. Act of worship. For you see, how can you have reasonable worship if you don't have integrity in the heart? He said, before others, I want to be blameless. Perfect? (laughs) Are we kidding? But it's the concept, you can't point the finger at that. There's not black marks on the person's life. There's, well, you know, he he was really living for Christ, but there's no exceptions. There's, there's that consistency before God. You're conscientious in your work. You're consistent in your walk before the living God so that nobody can point the finger and drill a hole into your heart. He said the third way is teaching by words. And the word here is concern. He said, I exhort. We all have had life lessons from people. I encouraged and I implored that beseeching earnestly. All of us remember the movie Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump said, stupid is as what stupid does. Now, this is stupid. 
I had a 1967 Mustang Fastback that I sold, are you ready, for Toyota. Oh. That was stupid is as stupid does. Yes. But I remember when I went off to college in that car, my dad came up to me and I thought, oh boy, here comes a lecture. He walked up and said, son, just do what you know you're supposed to do. And turned away and walked off. I've never forgotten that. Never forgotten that. So you see, Paul's character was molded by God. And he modeled that in his present commitment to these people to be tender as a mother and teaching as a father. He poured out his heart and soul. And he changed. Was it worth it? What happened to these people that he did that to? Well, verses 12 to 19 tell us that they would walk worthy of what? Who they are and who they represent. Walk worthy. Live according to what I have taught you as a father because I was tender to you as a mother. And as a result of that, these were people of conviction. I mean, everybody has a thought. Everybody has an opinion. But a conviction is something that is verified by an outside source over a period of time and is proven to be true and trustworthy. That's a conviction. And these people had that conviction. And that conviction was based upon the truth. He says, we receive, not as the word of men, but as it was in truth, the word of God. It wasn't based on some social personality. It wasn't based upon Paul's personality. It was based upon the truth of Scripture, of what God had taught him in that time in the desert. It was based upon his testimony. I mean, the Lord, you know, it says in Philippians 3, I mean, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was the tribe of Israel. I had the best of the best. I was so intent. I was persecuting the churches. I was self-righteous. I was blameless until one day on the Damascus Road. But God got a hold of my life. That testimony of the murderer becomes what? The missionary. The persecutor becomes the preacher. <laughs> can, you can you imagine if Paul came to your house at that time and knocked on the gate and wanted to come in? Who's there? Paul. Well, I, well Paul, you don't know me as Paul. You used to know me as Saul as Tarsus, but I'm Paul now. And your response was, go take a hike. Oh, yeah. But his testimony, this is what God did to me. This is how the Lord changed my life. And whenever Paul spoke and he taught, he said, this word of God works in the heart of these men and women. 
because it was based upon the truth and it was based on transformation. The Word of God was working in them. That's the word energized. The Word of God was working in these people's lives. It wasn't some social idea. It wasn't like, well, yeah, I kind of believe this stuff. Yeah, it doesn't sound too bad. No. It was working and energizing these people to be strong in the Lord and have a conviction about the truth of the living God. And then, was it easy? No, they got flack. They really got flack. They said they were people of courage. They stood by those convictions, and they suffered in the churches. But they saw what other churches were doing. They were imitators of the other churches. Those people were standing strong, and that influenced these people. And Paul to write, you can stand strong in spite of the difficulty. Be courageous like them. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's ever a time where we need to be people of conviction, it's now. April 27th, there was a poll that was taken about America's worldview inventory. That's what it was called. And it traced 30 years from 1990 to 2020. And it had six concepts. 30 years now. First question, uh, do you believe that the Bible gives an informed view of God? 1990, it was 73%. 2020, only 51%. Um, do you believe that Christ lived a sinless life? Only 41% of the people believed that. Uh, according to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not a living entity. Do you agree with that? 52% of the people said yes. That's dealing with the Trinity, my friends. Um, don't care, don't know or don't care about the existence of God in 1990, 8% of the people believe that, but now 32% of American population believes this. The fifth concept, uh, God is influential but not fully confident that he even really exists, almost 50%. The percentage of the nation's adults who choose to dismiss traditional teaching, 33%. And is it any wonder, as emails come across my desk from leading the way, there's so much confusion about salvation. There's so much confusion about biblical truth. And I thought to myself, where have you been all your life? And then I thought to myself, where has the pastors been all their life? Ladies and gentlemen, we must know who we believe in that there's salvation in no other name but that of our Lord. We must know what we believe in. Study to show ourselves approved unto God. We need to know why we believe it so we'll be ready when an opportunity is given to us to present the truth. I love what Monty Johnson said in Sunday school class last month. The absolutes 
are standards. Ethics are the beliefs about those standards. And morals are the practices that are governed by our ethics. Ethics demonstrate our standards. The question is, what type of standards and what type of ethics are we demonstrating for the next generation? People of courage, absolutely essential. I found this quote, I'm not sure where it's from. It says, in the past, we talked about the concept of the wretchedness of sin and what was amazing about saving grace. Now, sin is amazing and saving grace has become a wretched word. What a change. At a conference that Sally and I attended, Tony Evans was one of the speakers, and he said this, I am not worried about the next generation as much as the one after them and the one after that. So my challenge today to every one of us, as Paul says, in this verse. For who is our hope in verse 19 or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So my challenge is, when you stand before the Lord, who will be your glory and joy? It's not going to be a comparison test. It's not going to be, hey, Bill, how many did you get over there? No. It's going to be the Lord and ourselves. Who will be your glory and joy? It's not a task for a few. It's not. It's not a task for a younger generation. It's a task for our generation. You say, yeah, you know, I understand all that stuff you're saying, but, you know, man, I just don't think I can do that. I don't know. Can I tell you something? It is never too late to begin to do what's right. Never. You don't want to look back with regrets in your life and say, I should have, I could have, I would have. If only I had, opportunities are here. I think it is best expressed by J. Robertson McQuilkin. It's sundown, Lord. The shadows of my life stretch back into the dimness of years long spent. I fear not death, for that grim foe betrays himself at last, thrusting me forever into life. Life with you, unsoiled and free, but I do fear. I fear the dark specter may come too soon, or do I mean too late? That I should end before I finish, or finish, but not well. 
that I should stain your honor, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of the spirit growing mean and small, fruit shriveled on the vine, bitter to the taste of my companions, burdened to be borne by those brave few who love me still. No, Lord, let the fruit grow lush and sweet, a joy to all who taste. Spirit sign of God at work, stronger, fuller, brighter at the end. Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of tattered gifts, rust-locked, half-spent, or ill-spent. A life that once was used of God, now set aside. Grief for glories gone or fretting for a task God never gave. Mourning in the hollow chambers of memory, gazing on faded banners of victories long gone. Can I not run well into the end? Lord, let me get home before dark. The outer me decays. I do not fret or ask reprieve. The ebbing strength but weans me from Mother Earth and grows me up for heaven. I do not cling to shadows cast by immortality. I do not patch the scaffold lent to build the real eternal me. I do not clutch about me my cocoon, vainly struggling to hold hostage a free spirit, pressing to be born. But will I reach the gate in lingering pain, body distorted, grotesque? Or will it be a mind wandering untethered among light fantasies or grim terrors? Of your grace, Father, I humbly ask, let me get home before dark. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we run well. May we fight hard. And may we end the race with honor. Lord Jesus, May every one of us use the experiences that you have brought into our life and commit ourselves as a tender mother and a teaching father to the next generation. Whether it be someone in hub, Bible studies, ABC classes, small groups, whomever you have brought across our path. Lord Jesus, I pray that every Every one of us here will get home before dark. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.